So let's open with a word of prayer and then we will have wonderful Max. We've all been missing Max. He'll be back tonight. So uh, let's pray and then Max will lead us in. Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight and we thank you for this designated time in our week and in our day to gather and to open your word and to invite your spirit to teach us what it is that you would have us learn from this passage and the life of Nehemiah and your people, how that we are to relate to you and also relate to one another and to those uh, who you've placed in their path. Be with our time tonight, Holy Spirit. Uh, guide us and direct us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week, uh, Tom did, uh, as he always does, an eloquent, eloquent job of teaching us the grand history of leading us up to today, meaning today in the book of Nehemiah. And so Max is going to read uh, the rest of chapter 1, and then we will uh, dive into it. So Max, take it away. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your dispersed be under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power, and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. All right, so Nehemiah gets this uh, news, and it's shocking news to him. Because he tells us, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And it immediately brings up this question to mind, what is it in our lives that uh, breaks our heart? Or what is it in our lives that produces such a response? This sitting down and weeping and mourning for days. It wasn't like he just sat down and, and, and had a moment and was like, okay, moment over, let's move on. No, he, uh, this affected him for days upon days upon days, and it prompted this spiritual movement in him. And so we ask ourselves, what is it that moves us in such a way to actually affect change in our lives? Or what is it that when we see it, it breaks our heart. Is it that ASPCA commercial? 
Okay, some of you are like, that's too close. Okay, that breaks my heart. That little puppy in the cage. What is it that breaks our heart to this place of mourning for days? And he says, I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And it's interesting as we're doing this chapter today, because we started the season of Lent today, Ash Wednesday, and it's the season of fasting. And for some reason, we don't think that fasting is all that big of a deal as a spiritual discipline. And yet we see time and time again throughout uh, both the Old and New Testament, this call to a time of fasting and prayer. It's not, if you think about fasting, it's when you fast, this is the way that you should fast. And so why is it that we don't use fasting as a spiritual discipline in our lives? Well, I mean, let's be honest, because we don't want to, <laughs> right? A lot of us are like, fast? Are you kidding me? I have a hard time not having breakfast or lunch and then a snack and then dinner and then second dinner and then waking up in the middle of the night and having another snack. So don't talk to me about fasting? What? Unless it becomes cool, which it currently has become the latest trend in, in eating, and then you just fast so that you can say, oh, yeah, it's not in my window. Love to go out for uh, lunch, but it's not in my window. My window is from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. That's all I eat all day. In two hours, I consume a bag of Doritos, a pound and a half of hamburger, usually have a bowl of ice cream. It's in my window, so it's all okay. Science says that it's good for me. And those of you who are into fasting right now are debating me in your minds. But why is it that we don't like to fast as a spiritual discipline? Because it is an extremely power, powerful spiritual discipline, and the whole concept is it, we're doing it a, as a form of worship and to get dialed in on who God is. And oftentimes we use it when we have a big decision to make or we're looking for some, some significant discernment. And it's not to fast just for fasting's sake. It's to fast to say, God, I am wholly and completely dependent upon you, and I don't need this thing, fill in the blank. You're like, well, eventually I do need some food. And that's where we have limited this concept of fasting to just eating or drinking things. But we can fast from any number of things. So with the youth, we've been doing these uh, one-week spiritual discipline things. And so one of them, uh, I think it was last week, was turn off the radio in your car. So fast from the radio in your car. So if you have somebody with you, you have a conversation. Uh, and if you don't have anyone with you, you've got some time of silence. So fasting can be far more than just not eating food or eating a particular food. And when we're fasting, for health reasons, first and foremost, we can't use, it's not like a double bonus. It's not like God is rewarding me um, and I'm getting healthy. Like either we're fasting for God or we're fasting for ourselves. Let's not try and mix these situations. Nehemiah is fasting because he has been so moved 
by the situation that he has found and the situation of not only the people of God, but also the city of Jerusalem. And he says, he starts this prayer, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. This idea of chesed is far more than just um, what we think of as love today. It is this covenantal love that is far beyond what we can even imagine in our concept of love. And it's interesting because in the Ash Wednesday service today, this same word came up in Isaiah chapter 63, this idea of steadfast love. And whenever we see that in the English, it could, should cause us to pause and ponder for at least a few seconds, if not a few minutes. Because this type of love is this enduring, never-ending, covenantal love. And part of what Nehemiah is doing in this, in this prayer, in this first chapter, is he is tying in a lot of Deuteronomy and the Deuteronomic theology that exists, along with trying to get the people to remember the importance of what took place in their past, trying to call back where they have been. And so we'll look at a few different references specifically to Deuteronomy. He says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. You've seen, you've seen the video, right, of the little kid, Linda? Linda, listen, Linda. Are you, have you not seen it? Yes. If you haven't seen it, your life is, is lacking because it's classic. But it's this young kid basically yelling at his, okay, this sounds really bad. We'll call it his babysitter, whose name is Linda. And he's trying to get her attention. And he's just in the kitchen saying, Linda, Linda, listen to me, Linda, Linda. You're not, you're not seeing, just maybe if you close your eyes with me. See this portly little, I mean, imagine me when I was about four, okay? This tall and this wide. Um, Nehemiah is saying, God, listen to me. That your ear be attentive and your eyes open. This isn't like a passing casual attentiveness. This is, you are not only hearing the words that are coming out of my mouth, but you're hearing in such a way that it's going to cause you to act. And you're hearing and you're seeing what I have to say to you. And he says that I now pray before you day and night. Day and night. And we know that this chapter 1 is about a four-month period. <laughs> and we kind of had an interesting, laugh, an interesting laugh, and please hear me correctly um, 
and you know that I am the champion of this, and so why would I uh, speak derogatory about something that I'm so passionate about? But when we submit a card on Sunday with a prayer request, and then we don't pray about it ever again, are we that serious? Like if we come on Sunday and we, and we submit a card for a prayer request, and that's the only time we pray for it, we're not that serious. Because if we were serious, we would do it, pray for it, day and night until it comes to fruition. Until God gives us a response. You know, in, in college, I had this grand idea that I was going to learn how to play the guitar. <laughs> and so I got a guitar for my birthday, and I got a book. You're like, and, and when did you go to lessons? I don't need lessons. I had a book. I figured out the chords. I practiced like once every two weeks. And I never figured out how to play the guitar and I always complain, I just can't figure this thing out. Nikki's like, well, you don't ever practice. But it should be easier than this. <laughs> Isn't that often the case in our spiritual lives? Nehemiah is praying day and night for four months. And the challenge with any text like this is is when we see, spoiler alert, God answers his prayer, we have prayers in our lives that we have been praying at times for years. We pray for these things year after year after year, and we say, God, why are you not answering this prayer that I'm asking, and I've been asking and asking and asking and asking, and we don't really have the answer other than the fact that sometimes God answers a prayer in a way that we don't like and, and we miss it or we say, well, no, that's not what I wanted. I wanted something else, so we keep praying even though we've already gotten the answer. And Nehemiah prays and he prays and he prays. And who is he praying for? He's praying for the people of Israel. And what is he doing? He's confessing the sins of the people of Israel. And he says something very important, and he uses the first person plural. He says, we have sinned against you. We have sinned against you. And the interesting contrast between Ezra and Nehemiah is Ezra's like, you, 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 all of you people have done these bad things. And Nehemiah, right out of the gate, says, we. We have done these things. And Nehemiah, as this leader, is taking ownership for the sin that has taken place. And he's saying, we, myself, and my family have been a part of this sin, and we need to confess it before God. And it causes us to, to think about this. Because often our response is, why would I need to confess a sin that I didn't do? Why am I responsible for the sin of somebody else? Well, if you're a parent, or if you have a parent, 
You've ever had this instance where your parent does something in public and you say to the other, other people, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my dad. We were launching water balloons out at Lewis and Clark Lake once and the DNR officer came over and said, where's your parent? My dad's like, I'm right here. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Yeah, he is my dad. That is, that is correct. Or you have a friend that you're out and, and you're like, I'm sorry for my friend's behavior. You ever been there? Or maybe somebody, somebody does something, and, and I was using this example at lunch, somebody offends one of your friends, somebody from Timberwood Church does something to one of your friends, and you go to them and you say, I'm sorry on behalf of my church for how this person acted towards you. And they're like, well, you didn't do anything. Yeah, but I feel like I should take ownership for this because I'm a part of the body. If we acknowledge that we are the po- part of the body of Jesus Christ, then however the church acts, we should take ownership for the sins of the church. But oftentimes we don't want to take ownership for the sins of the church and confess what's happened in the past. We're like, well, let's just let the past be in the past. And yet when we read stories of how the church has treated people throughout history, people in our very own country, people in our very own state, people in our very own county, we should be grieved by the fact that that we, the church, have done something so egregious and so offensive. We have ruined people's lives and we should be on our knees confessing to God and asking for forgiveness for the actions of our ancestors. And for many of us, we're like, no, it's not my fault. I didn't do that. Yet, this isn't all Nehemiah's fault. And yet he is confessing the sins of the people. And if we are a part of the body of Christ, and the body of Christ has done something, then we have been a part of that, and it should break our hearts and cause us to seek forgiveness, confessing the sins of the people. As he says, confessing the, people, the sins of the people of Israel, but we could say confessing the sins of the people of God, the people of the church. And I know many, many people are like, that's no, no. <laughs> Next question. But it's true. We have sinned and we should confess. We don't like to talk about confession, though. <laughs> we do not like to talk about confession, so let's move on. <laughs> No, we don't like to talk about confession because we're admitting we've done something wrong. And we say, well, confession, that's what those other people do. And oftentimes I wonder if we confessed a little more often, would we acknowledge the amount of sin that still exists in our lives? He says, we've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Again, referencing Deuteronomy. 
And then he quotes directly out of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 4. You follow along in Nehemiah, and I will read from Deuteronomy. You're like, well, didn't you say it's a direct quote? Yes, that's why I want to just drive home this point. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, Deuteronomic theology, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I commanded you today with all your heart, all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven from the Lord your God, will gather you from there, he will take you. And he is alluding this gathering of the scattered peoples that are among him, among them. And if they return and keep his commandments, God will restore them, and that is what he is in the process of doing. They are your servants and your people. This is Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 29. And then he says again, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Because Nehemiah knows what he is about to do, and he knows what he has to do. And so he's asking God for this huge thing. And he says, your servants who delight to fear your name. What if that is how we were known? If we were known among our friends, oh, that person is someone who delights to fear in the name of God. And he's got this big ask that he would grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And this one commentator says, Nehemiah's greatness came from asking great things of a great God and attempting great things in reliance on him. Why was Nehemiah great? Because he asks God great things, big things, and he asks a great God to do these big things, and he does big things relying on God's faithfulness. And how often is it that God wants to help us do bigger things, but the problem isn't the bigness of God, the problem is the fear that we have that maybe it's, I'm not. Uh. And oftentimes the things that we do that we don't feel are that great is not because of who God is. It's because we lack the theology that says God is so much bigger than I could ever imagine. And so I'm going to ask him for this great thing. I'm going to ask him for this amazing thing. And I know that if he is behind it, it's going to happen. And we talk about this concept of childlike faith, and I was reminded of how my kids would ask for these, like, ridiculous things. 
And I had to inform Wyatt, God does, or God, Santa Claus does not bring internal combustion engines. I'm sorry. He's not that great. But your dad, no. (laughs) Your dad doesn't do that either. But kids, they ask for like crazy things, right? And you meet somebody who has this childlike faith and they pray for these crazy things and you're like, oh my word, I can't even believe you asked God for that huge thing. And then it happens and you think, why didn't I ask for that? (laughs) And oftentimes it's because our view of God is too small. Our view of God is not that great. Our view of God is just enough to get me saved, get me into heaven, protect me, provide me some resources while here on this earth, maybe heal some ailments now and again, but our view of God is not as great as we see the view that Nehemiah has of God. Because he knows he's about to do something that, that seems out of this world. And he gives us this reference that now I was cupbearer to the king. You're like, where's the amen? <laughs> you're saying this great prayer and then you're like, oh, by the way, did I mention I'm actually the cupbearer? I'm like Old Testament, sommelier kind of thing. That's what that means, right? They, they, they would select the wine for the king. They would taste the wine. And then if they died, the king would be like, guess I'm not drinking that. <laughs> he knows that what he's about to ask is something great. And let's hear what he asks. Two, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire, then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So, as I mentioned, it's been about four months of this fasting and praying and confessing, and we see in the month of Nisan, it's not Nisan, Nisan, which is the, the beginning of the year in the Persian calendar. And, and as I mentioned, the cupbearer is like the right-hand person, 
the right-hand man of the king. And so they would be in very close proximity to one another on a very regular basis. And he played a very key role, not only in his culinary experience, i.e. selecting the wines that he would consume, but he would take, taste the wine, and if he became ill or died, then the king was, wouldn't, wouldn't drink it. And so he, he was kind of a crucial uh, role in this, this position. And so he knows that God has placed him in this place, in this position at this time to do this great thing. And this is what he's been praying about for the opportunity. And and it's interesting because he walks in to this, this celebration and much like a horse, the king looks at him and says, why the long face? Come on, Joe, that was kind of funny, right? Do you use that one before? You can use it anytime you want. He's like, dude, what's wrong with you? Like, you don't usually act like this. Why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? If you're sick, then you could be sad, but, but you don't have a man cold, and, and, and so why would you be sad? And it's interesting because we don't like, we meaning the men in the room, most of us don't like to share our emotion. I went to a movie on Friday. It was like the first movie I hadn't cried at in a very long time. (laughs) But oftentimes we don't want to share our emotion. We keep it hidden and bottled up because we want to appear tough or we don't want people to see our soft side, or we don't want to seem vulnerable to people. And in, in this book, uh, The Broken Way, Ann Voskamp tells this story about this friend of hers, uh, and, and she's, they've just found out that her daughter has diabetes, type 1 diabetes, and she's on this roller coaster, and she finally shares the struggles that she's having with her friend, and her friend says, Wow. I never thought we were actually friends. And Anne is shocked and she says, why did you not think that we were friends after all these years and I've been supporting you and your ministry and praying for you and and we've had all these long conversations? And she says, because you've never actually been vulnerable with me. And when she shows her brokenness, her friend realizes that is where authenticity and true friendship comes into play. But how often do we walk around hiding our true feelings because, well, I can't, I, I just, frankly, I don't have time to get into it. Uh, I don't really want to talk about it. Um, I don't trust you, and so I'm not going to let you in. If you're have, ever having like a, a, a classic, no good, very bad, terrible kind of day, Try this experiment. When you go to the grocery store, when you go to any, any place where you have to exchange money or a card uh, for something, and the person says, how are you today? And you know deep down that you're terrible. Say, actually, I'm terrible. And see how they respond. Okay, well... Uh, Hope your day's better. We don't know what to do because we're so Minnesota nice. We're like, 
yeah, it's good. Yeah, good. Sunday morning, oh, how's it going? Yeah, it's good. Sometimes I just want to grab people. No, it's not. I know it's not good. Why are you lying? (laughs) We hide our emotions because we're afraid of being vulnerable. And Nehemiah has the king come to him and say, Nehemiah, why are you sad? And if Nehemiah was from north central Minnesota, the rest of history would have been ruined. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. No, he sees this opening. He shows his vulnerability. He sees this opening with the king, and he's been praying about this thing and praying about this thing, and he says, actually, I'm not good. He says this, terrible, thanks for asking. But let's not miss it. He says, then I was very much afraid. It wasn't that he was just afraid. He was very much afraid. Why should not my face be sad? Why should not my grammar be better? (laughs) (laughs) Of course I'm sad. I just got this news that my city, Jerusalem, is in ruins. The gates have been burned, and it's just in rubble. It's terrible. It's terrible. Nehemiah is going to a guy who has no time for God, who could care less about God, and he's like, let me just be honest with you. I'm bad, and this is why I'm bad. Because all of these things have happened, and it grieves me greatly. And I'm guessing he probably almost fell over when the king's like, what can I get you? Like, what do you need? Uh, 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 wasn't re- Actually, he was expecting that because he prays quickly to God. And, and Tom talked about this last week. You know, we, we think in, in these grandiose terms, now let's pray. And when we say now let's pray, what does that mean? Let's fold our hands. Let's bow our heads. Let's breathe slightly deeper. Not quite meditatively breathing because we don't want to fall asleep. We miss out on the value of the quick prayer. Lord, help me. (laughs) Right? Three words. You're walking into a situation. Somebody asks you a question and your response is, Lord, help me. That's a prayer. That's what he does. So I prayed to the God of heaven. He's been doing it for four months. He's kind of got this thing figured out. And he says to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. (laughs) Most kings aren't really cool with that. Like, hey, I want to go fortify this city of old that's been ransacked. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, which is a very interesting note. Chances are it's an allusion to the fact that this is not a huge party. This is an intimate setting. The queen is there, and she would have known Nehemiah, and she would have known the value that he played, and she is a witness And we know if the king makes a promise and the queen witnesses the promise, the promise is going to happen. And so Nehemiah's like, just so you know, the queen was there. She witnessed it. This is going to happen. 
how long will you be gone and when will you return? He's like, sounds good. How much time do you need? And it's interesting because he says, when will you return? Showing us that Nehemiah was such a key component to the king and his life, he doesn't want to lose him. He's like, I value you. I value you as a person. How much time do you need? When are you coming back? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Now, we have to be honest. I mean, like most things, like most guys, his time estimation's terrible. Because he gives him a time, and it takes him way longer than he said it was going to take. So it's either a biblical thing or or a male thing. I don't know. He's like, how much time do you need? And he's like, oh, and by the way, one more thing. (laughs) Or actually about three more things. Nehemiah isn't just looking for, for the opportunity to leave. He has this vision that he's sitting in the catbird seat with the king, and he knows he needs some things. Like, if the walls are destroyed, he's going to need some things. And he knows he's got him exactly where God wants him and where God has placed him, meaning the king. And he's like, oh yeah, a couple things. Uh, some snacks for the road. No, he doesn't say that. Let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. You know, he's going into enemy territory. He needs proof that the king is backing him up. In a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, he's going to the lumber yard. He needs a picking ticket. You ever try to get in the back of Menards? Why would you go to the back of Menards? I know. It's like one step this side of Sheol. Sorry, Menard. There's no Menards people in here, right? I mean, there's Menards fans in here, but nobody who owns Menards has stake in Menards. I mean, come on. Let's be honest. This guy who has the access to the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. Oh, that's it? (laughs) That's it. That's all you need? You know, like, all this board feet of lumber? Sounds great. I mean, just imagine that. Like, he goes to... He goes to the king. He's feeling bad. The king's like, ah, looks like you're having a bad day. How could I make it better? Well, actually, I want to leave for, you know, like 10 plus years. Oh, okay. Anything else? Oh, and actually, yeah, uh, I need safe passage. And I need access to all this wood uh, because we're about to rebuild Jerusalem. Is that a problem? Oh, no problem at all. Great God doing great things. 
through a guy who is not afraid to ask and rely on this greatness of God. And notice, he's not like, yeah, I just need a couple things. He knows exactly what he needs. He knows exactly what is available. And he goes and he's like, here's the list. How often is it that we go to God and we say, ah, God, yeah, I need some help um, with some things. So um, if you could help me, that would be great. And um, about that other thing, yeah, that too. Why don't we go to God and we say, God, this is exactly what I'm dealing with. I don't know how to handle this situation with this person, and I need your help because of this, this, and this. Or God, I'm really struggling with exactly what we're struggling with, and be specific. Nehemiah knows exactly what they need. And he's, he gets it. He gets it. You're like, wow, he's a master negotiator. No. Why does he get it? Verse 8. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah was great because he was asking great things from a great God and relying on him to do great things. May that be the description of us. Every single day, go to your groups.